Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions Podcast. Well, specifically, it was that she was waking a lot at night. Uh, she started waking four or five times at night, and this is a child who'd been sleeping through since she was 11 months old. So it was really unusual, and she could never tell us why she was awake. And then I'd say she had a lot of emotional dysregulation. She was a very calm, even-tempered child. And then her moods just started to swing, didn't they? Yeah, and I, I remember that she she used to... She always had this little trick she played. She was an early riser and she'd always know when I'd stumbled out of bed and I'm sort of not a, not a good waker. And she'd lay a trap, she'd jump out and ambush me. Um, and nearly get me sort of every third day I'd forget that she did, does this. And, and um, she just stopped doing that and then she stopped really even wanting to say good morning to me. She wanted Mary Ellen, she didn't want me. That's Mary Ellen and Jackson Rogers, friends of mine. They're talking about their five-year-old daughter, Amity. But I just thought that she's, she's not finding any joy with me. So I still didn't pick up that this was an illness. I just thought, oh, well, there's, you know, kids change and develop and there's ebbs and flows and, you know, things will, things will get back to normal. Well, months went past of this and her not thriving and we knew something was wrong, but it was very psychological. And, but then we noticed a few more physical things. She started tripping over for no reason. Um, she started staring. She had staring spells. Mm. And it all sort of came to a head in, in the space of one week. As we noticed these more physical issues, the preschool director took me aside and said, 
she's really not herself and it's no longer a phase. A phase doesn't go for this long. And I went home that night and I wrote a list. I still remember the little scrap of paper. I was sitting on our couch and I said to Jackson, we've got to write down everything that we think is different about her. So we made this list and it was an extraordinarily long list. And I looked at it and thought, oh my goodness, that is a lot of things that have changed about her. The day Mary Ellen was due to take Amity to her GP, Amity was having trouble walking. Mary Ellen described it as her legs just giving way beneath her. They ended up at hospital emergency and Amity had a CT scan. She went into the machine by herself and about 20 minutes later, that same ER doctor just gave me this look and he said, we have to talk. Amity was diagnosed with DIPG, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. It's a brain tumour, a really bad brain tumour. The words themselves just hung heavy. I mean, and the way that he was saying it and looking, it was not good. I mean, we just knew it was not good. Amity was five years old. She was bright, vivacious, caring and funny. But now this, a diagnosis and prognosis of every parent's worst nightmare. Jackson and Mary Ellen were people of faith, deep, long-held faith. But nothing prepared them for this. So it's understandable that people without that kind of faith would take all this as evidence that an all-good, all-powerful God just can't exist. You walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her or it? I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. Whether bone cancer or brain cancer, comedian and author Stephen Fry speaks for many. How can a good God exist in a world of such pain? I think there are things to say in response to this, but there are no neat answers. It's debatable whether there are any intellectually satisfying answers for why this happens. This is the problem at the heart of what philosophers call theodicy, the attempt to justify God in the face of evil and suffering. It's a long philosophical and theological discussion, but there's a danger in it in attempting to explain suffering we can diminish people's experience of suffering. I was there during Amity's illness, and the last thing Jackson and Mary Ellen needed or wanted was a homily on, I don't know, the three reasons God allows pain. Interestingly, the famous Oxford Don C.S. Lewis found this for himself. He had written an intellectual book on suffering called The Problem of Pain. He brilliantly lays out some of the semi-cogent explanations of suffering from a Christian point of view. But even his own book and reflections didn't prepare him for the decline and death of his wife, Joy. The book he wrote after she died was titled A Grief Observed, and he explained in it that while he wasn't in much danger of becoming an atheist, Joy's death did challenge his traditional theodicy. He wrote, 
The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. So that's where we're heading today, into the complex, stimulating, disturbing problem of pain. I'm John Dixon. This is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Maelstrom, How Jesus Dismantles Patriarchy and Redefines Manhood, by Carolyn Custis James. Every episode of Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Let's start with some jargon, Bethany. Uh, normal people don't use uh, the word theodicy, but uh, you philosopher theologians do. So what on earth is a theodicy? Well, uh, I define theodicy as just that whole branch of theology that tries to answer how is God good in light of evil? So anything That's Dr. Bethany Soloretta, a research fellow in science and religion at Campion Hall, University of Oxford. Bethany specializes in the problem of suffering from a theological, philosophical perspective. She's also interested in animal suffering and evolution, and I spoke to her about that for a separate episode later in the year. One of her books is called Why Is There Suffering? It's like no other book on the topic. 
it's a sort of choose your own adventure where you literally decide which order to read the chapters in, depending on where on the philosophical landscape you find yourself and want to go. Bethany has her convictions about God and pain, but interestingly, and perhaps disconcertingly for some, she doesn't push one way or the other. It makes for a fascinating conversation. So anything to deal with the question of suffering, why there's suffering, why there's evil. Um, the term was coined by Leibniz in 1710 for his book, Theodosie. Um, and, you know, people have retrospectively applied that, whether rightly or not, we can discuss two earlier theological treaties on uh, trying to deal with, with God's goodness in light of suffering. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, because the, my Oxford Dictionary tells me that it really only popped into the English language in the 18th century. Uh, so is that when we started um, asking this question about the goodness of God in the face of suffering? No, I mean, the, the question has been asked. I mean, we've got, uh, I think Lactantius points to Epicurus in 300 BC as sort of setting out the basic question. You know, if God is good and God is powerful, why in the world would there be suffering? Epicurus is the early 3rd century BC pagan philosopher who advocated that the gods aren't really interested in us and so we're just left to find pleasure as an antidote to pain as we struggle along in this world. We have a bunch of his teachings, but much of it is lost. This particular Epicurean conundrum about God and suffering is found in a much later work by the Christian philosopher Lactantius in the early 4th century AD. I really love Lactantius. I may have mentioned him once or twice. And in one of his works, he interacts with a whole bunch of ancient Greek philosophers. And along the way, he tells us of an argument of Epicurus, which he no doubt had in front of him, but which is now lost to us, which poses the dilemma. If God is able to end suffering, but is unwilling, he must be unkind or disinterested. If he is willing, but unable, he is feeble. Either way, he isn't really worthy of the name God in the providential sense. Lactantius basically responds by asking, how on earth do we know God's unwillingness to end all suffering isn't due to some wise and good reason? More about that later. I think what happened in the 18th century was that people began to be obsessed with the logical compatibility of that question rather than how do we live well in light of suffering or how do we how does how does suffering transform our lives or even should we trust god rather than zeus or rather than you know some other god so in the ancient world this question was always in the context of polytheism it was should we trust you know israel's god yahweh or should we trust some other god and so the the question of suffering was bound up with those kind of decisions, not should we believe a God exists at all. That wasn't the primary question. Of course, these days, people like Stephen Fry and many others are focused on that question. Pain and suffering disprove God's existence. But do they? Okay, but not all pain and suffering are necessarily um, bad or, or call into question God's goodness. No, I don't think that they do. In fact, I would argue that pain and suffering are actually gifts of God given so that we can live well in this world. And that sounds counterintuitive, 
until you see people who don't have the ability to feel pain. So I'm, I'm going to give two examples. The first, people are born uh, with a congenital insensitivity to pain. So from birth, they don't know how to feel pain. And what happens is they don't live very long because they don't ever learn how to protect themselves. So if they, you know, if you or I run ourselves headlong into a wall, we think, oh man, that hurt. I'm never going to do that again. Whereas they will often feel quite an interesting set of vibrations through their <laughs> through their head and think, wow, that was kind of fun. Let's do it again. And so they can just damage themselves over and over again. And so, you know, so physical suffering keeps us safe, but actually emotional suffering also allows us to live in community. Um, so the modern equivalent of not feeling the pain of the mind, social suffering is psychopathy. It's somebody who cannot feel emotional pain due to social situations. And that is not a, a, a good way to live in this world. That's a really hard way to live. And God in healing somebody from that would be giving them back the ability to suffer. So I think that there are those types of suffering that are really good. And then there's another category where you are suffering because somebody chose to do evil to you. And I don't think that that's suffering that God intends. The common logical syllogism goes like this. An all-powerful God could end suffering. An all-good God would end suffering. But since suffering exists, an all-powerful, all-good God does not exist. I put this to Bethany, and she, well... In, in all honesty, John, as soon as somebody puts those three together, I am bored out of my mind. And I just... Huh. just I hate boring my special guests, so I quickly moved on to the next question. The fact is, as a logical argument, this famous syllogism doesn't quite have the force many people think. For a full-scale analysis, you really should Google logical problem of pain and add Professor Alvin Plantinga, one of the leading philosophers of religion over the last 30 years. Maybe producer Kaylee can put that in the show notes. But the basic line of thought is pretty simple. The existence of suffering could be used as evidence against God's existence only if we could first show that an all-good, all-powerful God couldn't have good reasons for allowing suffering to continue. But how could we know that? We ourselves, from time to time, allow some measure of pain in our lives for good reasons, whether the pain of a physical challenge, the pain of medical treatment, or the pain we let our children experience when we give them certain freedoms. The fact that we allow some small measure of pain for the sake of some small good ends at least means we can't rule out that God himself might have infinitely greater reasons for the greater measure of pain that he allows in our world. The point is, until we show that there could be no good purpose behind God allowing suffering, this popular argument doesn't have logical force. As Lactantius replied to Epicurus, how on earth do you know that the infinite God doesn't have good reasons for permitting evil and pain? In fact, the whole thing can be turned around into a very different syllogism that is, in fact, more logically coherent. Think of this. An all-good God would only allow suffering for good reasons. An all-powerful God 
could achieve those purposes. Therefore, if God exists, he must have a good and achievable rationale for suffering. Of course, I'm well aware that logic is hardly the point when faced with genuine pain. I get that. But it was the oncologist who said, you've probably got nine months. Um, Mm. And I remember saying to my sister who'd come to the hospital from Brisbane, um, saying it's terminal cancer. And she said, is that the word the doctor used? And I said, well... I I think I must have said something like, well, he said she's got nine months. And I just remember (laughs) standing there with her and saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I remember coming back the following night. So I stayed the first night in the hospital. Amity was asleep and then she woke up. The following night I came back and um, Mary Ellen's mum was there with the kids and we hadn't yet told them all the details of the seriousness. And so we got to dinner time and we decided, as usual, we'd sing our grace. And um, we sang, the Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord. And I remember looking at my mother-in-law and I, I haven't been able to sing that song since. And um, yeah, it's 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 been a wrestle. The Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord. Hard words when you're losing a child. At the time of Amity's diagnosis, Jackson and Mary Ellen had a Christian faith. We were all at church together. Their question was less the logical one, does God exist, and was more the moral or theological one, what on earth is God doing and what does he intend to do about it? It's a very ancient question among Christian thinkers. I want to wind back now and do a little bit of uh, ancient and medieval uh, history uh, of Christian thought. Um, Who who were the ancient and medieval Christian thinkers that did confront uh, theodicy? And what do you make of their projects? Yeah, in 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 one way or another, um, I I think just about anyone. I mean, if you're looking at uh, the Church Fathers, you're looking at Irenaeus, you're looking at Augustine, you're looking, you know, at the medieval figures, Aquinas, Bonaventure. You know, all these all these people come to mind, and of course, they all dealt to some degree with this with this question of suffering. But it's interesting that you call it a project because, of course, that's exactly what they would not have called it. Right. So what they are doing is, as Kenneth Surin points out, is they are responding to the the lived problem of evil in a pastoral way. And so you see that in their questions. They're not trying to take apart the skeptical arguments from atheists for, you know, the vast majority of the time. What they're trying to do is say, how can we know and love God? Hmm. In, in a world of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I had to ask a little more about Thomas Aquinas, of course. One of them who comes sort of vaguely close to 
you know, more of a philosophical project is Thomas Aquinas. You mentioned him. And I, I, I want to do a few things. I'm fascinated um, by him. Um, first, tell us something about what he's trying to do philosophically speaking. Just sort of stand back. What is what is um, Thomas doing? Well, he's he's a really interesting character because, of course, if we're thinking about what he's ultimately doing, which is to try and know and love God better. He begins in his five ways by saying, of course, the nature of God cannot be known. So we, we, we cannot know what God is. All we can do is know what God is not. And so I think- Bethany is talking here about Aquinas's five ways to demonstrate the existence of God. We talk quite a bit about those in episode 57, Jesus Philosopher. I spoke to Angus Brooke, who specialises in Aquinas. So go back and look for that one or just go to the show notes where there's a link. And so I think from the very beginning, he has this, what we call a via negativa. He has a negative approach to kind of saying, let's get rid of the distractions. Let's get rid of the things that are not God so that what we see at the end is God. And when it comes to the to the problem of, of suffering, um, and I'm, I'm not an Aquinas scholar, I should say, so I'm thinking how he's been interpreted by people like Herbert McCabe. There, there are two sorts of different kinds of evil. There's, there's sort of evil that uh, is suffered, evil that happens to you. So, um, say a rock falls off of a cliff and, and falls on you. That, that's not, that's not moral evil in a problematic way. And he would say that uh, the reason that happens is because of conflicting goods that come from what God has created. So God created gravity, God created rocks to have uh, a, a particular firmness, more firmness than the human body so that they can create uh, a crust of the earth that we can walk on. Um, but at the same time, when uh, those things try and inhabit the same physical space, uh, the one that is softer, aka, you know, my body is going to not do so well in that encounter. So there's, there's a conflict of two good things happening there. And then he's also going to say, there's sin, there is moral evil. And he's going to say that that is not anything at all, that that is a lack of that created goodness. And so one of the examples I use in my book is it's like, God, God can create um, light, for example. Um, but God doesn't actually create darkness. Darkness is the lack of light. And so if I cut my hands into a little ball, like I'm, I'm hiding a golf ball in my hands and I peek into that, um, I, I see darkness. Now, I haven't created that darkness. I didn't set a little darkness fire or anything like that. All I did was I blocked out light. And so that's the way in Aquinas's view that evil emerges into the world because we can create little pockets of darkness in ourselves and in our lives and in our worlds by blocking out the creative, the good love of God uh, that, that otherwise permeates creation. Where evil comes from is probably a question for another episode. Actually, we've had quite a few people write into the show and ask that one. Bethany is more interested in exploring the various ways we cope with evil, how we come to terms with suffering. And Bethany lays out the alternatives in a really compelling way. She's more generous to some of the views than I would be, but that's part of her charm and the importance of her book. 
The fact is, different people find different paths compelling. And so Bethany strives to explain what it is people are looking for when they're drawn to one explanation over another. You're a great believer in teasing out the options around suffering and seeing what benefit or otherwise uh, the different options might offer. So can I throw a few options at you and you tell me what might be helpful and unhelpful about them? It's a kind of quick fire Friday. Okay. All right. All right. I'm ready. I mean, it's Monday morning, but (laughs) sure. (laughs) First option, God doesn't end suffering because he kind of can't. He's um, given the universe and us a lot of freedom, and he even he doesn't know how it's all going to pan out. Great. So I I actually really like this one, even though at first it sounds a little bit scary. And uh, there's usually two camps in this in this sort of view. One is called process theism, and the other is called open theism. And the process theists are the ones who say actually God cannot stop suffering. Open theists say God does not for other reasons, um, particularly because the nature of love requires true freedom on, on the behalf of the beloved. And so if God stopped freedom, that would also stop our ability to encounter one another, to love one another, to grow as, as people and as agents in the world. And the idea that we even God doesn't know how it will pan out is articulated differently between those two. So the the process theist would say we actually don't know if God will win or not. This is this is the profound depth of divine love is that God began this creation and will continue to woo it towards uh, completion. But the risk is such that that God doesn't know. Open theism says, "Oh, God! God will definitely win. God will one day step in and abolish evil." But the the way that that uh, pans out will be in response to and in partnership with how we've created the world. And so, what an open theist would say is that God doesn't. Um, doesn't absolutely work out what the future will look like, but is more like a jazz musician working with others to create beautiful harmonies out of even our discordant acts. Hmm. You better be a maestro or, or it's, it's going to be a rotten tune. One of the most important advocates of open theism is Clark H. Pinnock. His basic argument is that human freedom is real only if the future is basically open. If it's open, it must be open even to God. God is, of course, powerful, Pinnock said, but part of his love is to leave things open-ended. He himself is a participant in our choices. Now, some people find this comforting. That's Bethany Solaretta's point. People find some level of peace knowing that God is not responsible for the things going wrong. It's all just the freedom of creation and God himself is watching with patience and love through it all. God is part of the unfolding story and even he doesn't quite know how it's going to end. 
It'd be fair to say that most Christian thinkers, from Irenaeus to Aquinas and beyond, view open theism as a departure from the Bible's portrait of God, a God who knows and commands the future. And I'm not a fan of open theism myself. For one thing, although it might let God off the hook for suffering, it doesn't give the sufferer much hope that God can and will bring everything back to a glorious resolution, which is a big part of what the Bible says to the sufferer. Still, open theism is an important theory, and we're going to put a link in the show notes for some explanatory articles, along with some critiques. Okay, next theory. God is at war. You know, the, the devil and his armies are, you know, the ones wreaking havoc, and, you know, God's sometimes wins, sometimes doesn't, and that explains suffering. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think, I think that that really is, is quite, quite a simple way to approach it. Um, it, it, it just says, okay, God doesn't want this suffering, but God has an opponent in, in Satan. And this is particularly useful if you realize that suffering and death have been aspects of creation for, you know, four billion years since life began. So if you only had death as a result of sin, then you wouldn't expect it in the paleontological record. You'd expect it to come in, you know, however many thousand years ago that that modern humans have been around. Um, whereas we see that dinosaurs ate each other and had cancer and all, all these things. And so the God is at war uh, allows us to, to deal with that chronological problem. Um, but I think that it hands too much of creation over to Satan uh, to, you know, that would be my take on, on its, on its demerits. Um, people. So the God at war theory would say that suffering wasn't part of God's plan. It's the result of God's enemy instead. And the ancient fallen angels, as Bethany writes in her book, could have been around mucking things up and disrupting God's harmonious creation all through its development. Hmm. Next theory. What about deism? What would you say is strong and weak about the idea that we shouldn't really waste our time blaming God because God just wound up the universe, you know, 13.8 billion years ago or whatever, and he isn't involved in how things play out? Yeah. Well, I think what that does is that it allows um, people to say, let's not look for supernatural explanations. Let's just get on with solving the problem of suffering as we see it. God gave us a good world. God gave us reason to deal with things and, and we can get on with it. Um, I think that the uh, problems with that is, for me, I would really have questions about the goodness of that God. Um, and I think I would have questions about our actual ability to deal with some of the problems we're faced with. <laughs> we're just, you know, because the, the you know, if, if the problem is death, I mean, no matter how technologically advanced we are, we're never, that's not a problem we're going to solve. Uh, if, if, you know, and, and part of the problem is this way that suffering is both deeply disturbing and necessary. So if, if, we're, if God is ever going to create a new creation that doesn't involve pain and suffering, it's going to be need to be a world built on totally different foundations. And that is just not this world. And that's not something we can technologically create ever because we'd need a different law of physics. So I still need God to come in and take creation back down uh, and, and rebuild it entirely 
for the sort of promises in the Bible to be uh, good. And then, of course, there's atheism. Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist and outspoken atheist, wrote in his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian Way of Life, these words. Thanks, Director Mark. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Atheism. You know, uh, there's no rhyme or reason in the universe. The chaos of the world is exactly what you'd expect because there's no grand mind behind it all. Are you able um, to describe what you think is attractive and unattractive about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it just it just cuts through all of this sort of philosophical debate and says, nope, this is it. And I think that it has more confidence in human potential than most of the other ones. So it really says, look, the world is what we make it. Meaning is what we make it. So uh, let, let's get to work. Let, let's stop your, oh, it's good for you to suffer because you can draw near to God or whatever. No, we're going to stop suffering. It's a clear vision. I think it is sometimes closer to the God of the Bible that I know than some of the purportedly Christian options I know. So I think even if one doesn't stop at atheism, I think if you've been taught that God hates you and is sitting over you waiting you to punish you for evil i'm gonna say atheism looks really attractive ne next to that and might actually be a really good <laughs> palate cleanser um for you to be able to listen in a new way to the goodness of the gospel yeah i mean there's, there's loads of kinds of gods that don't exist <laughs> about which we should be atheists yeah yeah okay I like that. Atheism is a really good palate cleanser. I admit that I occasionally run a thought experiment where I myself become an atheist. I will literally be walking along at the beach or a crowded city street and convince myself there's no God and that everything is just accidental. I don't stay there long, but it is really clarifying. It helps me think through where I would possibly find meaning if there's no transcendence, if there is at bottom no design, no purpose. And it helps me ponder how on earth I would try and establish an ethical framework if there's no evil and no good, and how I would view the world if I thought there was nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I'm not recommending this as a habit, dear listener, but my thought experiments always leave me pretty grateful that I find God utterly compelling. And that brings us to the last option. It's all a mystery. It's all a great mystery. God is God. We're not. We just have to find solace in the mystery. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that that ultimately is where any honest inquirer ends up. So, I mean, at some point you have to be able to say, we just don't know enough. Our limited human minds cannot figure this out. And so I think when you talk to people who have suffered 
deep tragedies and traumas, they often talk about this as the point where they felt most peace, the point where they finally said, okay, I'm not in control. God, I don't understand what's going on, but I trust you and I will walk through this with you by my side and it will be okay. And I cannot explain how it will be okay or why, but I will trust. And that that's really, really good. That's a great inner transformation of the soul. On the, on the harder side, I think that saying it's a mystery can often be a cop-out for doing hard work in both understanding the world we live in and in uh, understanding and, and in relieving suffering, for example. So, you know, if doctors didn't work really hard trying to figure out why they're suffering, there's a whole lot of suffering they'd never have gotten around to, to preventing. You know, if engineers didn't work out ways to get fresh water to people and build sewers, we would, you know, have diphtheria, we'd have, you know, all, all these cholera things running through our system that would cause a whole lot more suffering. And the only reason it didn't was because people said, here's the suffering, let's figure out why it's happening and how we can prevent it. And right there is one of the biggest criticisms of theodicy. We can spend too much time trying to explain it and not enough time seeking to eradicate it. And as every listener will know, because none of us is untouched by suffering, when you are actually suffering, you don't want someone to tell you why it's happening exactly. You want someone to make it stop. Try explaining why God doesn't end suffering to a five-year-old. She just, yeah, she just didn't understand how God would not be able to save her. If God is this creator of everything, how could he possibly not see the good in saving her? And that was a really difficult thing to discuss with her. And so I could see ourselves as a family just just pulling away from the God stuff <laughs> with the children because it just seems so hard. Um, so I think we probably read fewer Bible stories, wouldn't you say? Probably prayed a little bit less, actually, as a family, bizarrely, because I think I really struggle with this idea that we would pray fervently every night um, for the most pressing issue in our family, which was that Amity is unwell. And yet I knew that she was going to see that that, prayers, that prayer was going to go unanswered. So it was a really tricky terrain to navigate. And look how, how Amity managed it. She uh, went through, I suppose, the normal reactions. She was furious she yeah. said very clearly, Jesus isn't magical and mm. God's not real. Mm. So she went through anger, disbelief. I remember she had a special name for God. Yes. <laughs> which you can repeat. <laughs> God is a poo. Yeah. In, in imperfect language of a five-year-old. Um, I think the most hilarious one, though, and, it, and she really meant it. She said, I'm going to, when I get to heaven, I'm going to kick Jesus in the face. <laughs> Um, which might sound appalling, but we all yep. felt, yeah, fine, do it, and he'll take it. But then I felt I saw her come round to a weird sort of acceptance. And you could say, well, she was just saying that to calm me down and to say what I wanted her to say. Um, but she did start saying in her very last month 
when words were still able to form, she'd say things like, well, I suppose Jesus will look after me. Um, it, be- it became not so much, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why doesn't he save me? It became more, well, I guess I'm going to heaven and I'll be looked after. Um, and so her, her, cap- her, her sentence about kicking Jesus in the face when she gets there sort of captures the anger but at the same time rooted in belief. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think the belief remained intact. God is a poo, and I'm going to kick Jesus in the face. It's confronting, but there's a psalm or two about that in the Bible. One striking thing about the Bible's whole approach to suffering is that it fully endorses our right to doubt, to plead and complain to God himself. The book of Psalms are songs of prayer and praise that God has given to us to say to him. And roughly 30 of the 150 Psalms are classified as Psalms of complaint or lament. Here's Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Or Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. You know, if I were a Hindu, saying this sort of thing would be a sign of my ignorance that everything happens as a result of karma, the balancing of the universe. And if I were a Buddhist, this would be proof that I was not enlightened, that I was too attached to the things of this world. And if I were a Muslim, it would border on blasphemy, since in Islam, everything that happens is the finger of Allah, decreed in God's eternal book. And of course, if I were an atheist, it's all utterly meaningless. There's no rhyme or reason, and there's no one to put this question to. And I reckon many church folk would feel uncomfortable uttering these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many feel the only faithful response is, you know, in Psalm 23, the more famous one. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and all that beautiful stuff. But the presence of Psalm 22 immediately before Psalm 23 reminds us that sometimes the plea, my God, why, is just as much an expression of faith as the affirmation, the Lord is my shepherd. The God of the Bible asks us to approach him with our doubts and fears and frustrations. Because it's in this mode of personal engagement that we're in a position to hear something of God's reply. More after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, Corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. 
Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions. Thank you. So DIPG... The long name for that is Diffuse Intrinsic Pontine Glioma. It's actually the most aggressive, most difficult to treat cancer to affect anyone, children or adults. Uh, It's an absolutely devastating disease and it's one of the only cancers for which there is actually absolutely no effective therapy. That's Associate Professor David Ziegler, an oncologist at the Children's Cancer Institute here in Sydney. We heard before the break that Amity Rogers was just five years old when she was diagnosed with DIPG, a terminal brain tumour. Her parents, Mary Ellen and Jackson, both people of Christian faith, were thrown into months of despair as they watched their little girl get weaker and weaker. As an oncologist, the worst, most difficult conversation we can have with parents is to tell them your child has DIPG, they aren't curable, we have no treatments, we know that your child is going to die. I remember one night, it was December. I think the thing about DIPG that doctors know so well, which is why they turn pale when you mention that your child died of DIPG, because they call it the worst of the worst. Um, is that most children get locked in syndrome. Um, And so that's to say that cognitively they're actually fine, that the tumour's in the brainstem, so they're not really affected in their thinking area. But they're trapped because once the brainstem, which is where the messages come from your thinking part of your brain through to your body, once that brainstem is so clogged with tumour cells, your body, you can't do anything. Um, Amity just, so she slowly lost herself chunk by chunk. We had her able to squeeze our finger and then that went. She couldn't squeeze our fingers. We had her able to flash open her eyes, but then she couldn't open her eyes. Um, So for the last three weeks, I'd say a clear three weeks, she had full locked-in syndrome, could not do anything this is the point where philosophizing about suffering just feels wrong. And Bethany Soloretta feels that deeply. You've written, you've written a whole book on the problem of suffering. Your own doctorate at Exeter University um, treated this. Um, but some would say it's really indulgent 
to philosophize about all this stuff because, um, you know, there's a real suffering world out there. And in a way, um, philosophizing silences the cries of the truly um, pained. Yeah, no, I I hear that. And I absolutely agree with that. Um, which is, I think, why I've, I've tried to write this new book that I hope will actually be helpful to people. Because one of the things that really frustrated me was that every book you opened on the question of evil started with a disclaimer. This is not meant for anybody who is suffering. You know, this, this really isn't that kind of book. And I thought, well, what, what is, what is the point of this then? I don't, I don't get it. Um, why, why are we doing this now? Having said that, the the privilege I had, and, and it probably was indulgent, of, of spending three years reading through all of these different views was actually, I think, spiritually beneficial to me. So I sort of say, I, I did two PhDs, one of the head and one of the heart. And looking through all these options helped me figure out what I did think, and it has helped bring me... Um, into a place where I feel like I have a better grasp, not not a full grasp, but a better grasp of, of when to say, here's a problem we can and should solve. Here is suffering that actually is good in its own way, and so we shouldn't try and just stop it. And here is um, suffering that, that we can't understand and we have to trust God with. And I think that figuring out those those three different things, it's like the old serenity prayer, God grant me the power to, you know, change the things I can, the patience to endure the things I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference. I, I really do think that uh, the time I got to spend has helped me figure out where I think those boundaries lie and therefore has helped me decide how how to spend my life and my time in in trying to serve God. There are probably three types of questions we ask when confronted by the evil and suffering of the world. There's a question about the past. Why did God allow it? There's one about the future. What will he do about it? And there's a question for the present. Where is God in our pain? Put another way, we want explanation We want restoration and we want to find consolation. The Bible is shy on specific explanation. I mean, there is broad explanation on human evil. The Bible sort of says that God has created humans with the capacity to refuse his ways. And while we use that capacity with harmful consequences, God considers that a greater good than if he had made us without that capacity. On natural suffering, the Bible says basically that the human rejection of the Creator brought a measure of decay to the creation, a reverberation of our estrangement from God. The creation itself experiences a degree of independence from the Creator that somehow mirrors the independence humanity has demanded from God. At least that's how I read what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. But beyond this, The Bible doesn't explain why any particular tragedy occurs. The Bible is shy, as I say, about straightforward explanations of our suffering. 
And it's not that there weren't tidy options available in ancient times. The writers of the Bible were well aware that, for example, many Egyptians, Greeks and Romans, viewed suffering as divine payback, the gods punishing. And the Bible doesn't take that option. And then there were the naturalists, like the Epicureans, who said the gods weren't really involved. Everything is just random atoms. And obviously the Bible doesn't teach that either. And there are even quite a few Greeks and Romans who believed in something pretty close to reincarnation and karma. So Pythagoras was one, but so was the great Plotinus. Slaves, the poor, murder victims, said Plotinus, uh, are all getting what they deserve for their deeds from a previous cycle of life. Now, these are all tidy explanations. The Bible could have taken any one of them, but it rejects them all. And in one biblical book, apparently all about suffering, the book of Job, there are lots of questions, lots of proposals, and no answers. Check out the book. It's really long, but basically, Job suffers the loss of his family and the loss of his property and goods and uh, fame and social status. And he cries out to God, Why? He says, Here I am, I'm righteous. You know, why have you done this? And loads of people, his friends and wise ones, come to him to give him an explanation. And all the explanations turn out to be wrong. There is just the final appearance of God to Job at the end, which fills him with awe and wonder. And there's also a final restoration of Job's fortunes. God's presence and restoration, but no explanation. It's almost like the Bible deliberately shuns explanation. This is exactly what some great philosopher theologians of our day have said. People like Jürgen Moltmann and his most celebrated student, Professor Miroslav Volf of Yale, a guest on our show last year. Volf argues that neither Job nor the Apostle Paul in the New Testament were interested in theodicy, in defending God in the face of suffering. Here's Volf in a lecture at Biola University in 2019. In all justification of God in the face of suffering, most of us think that we can detect at least a whiff of a putrid odor of attempts to justify suffering itself. The long speeches of Job's friends are the case in point. Theodicies are all about showing that in some way suffering is appropriate. The absence of theodicy in Paul echoes one of the main points of the, of the book of Job, namely that the silence of non-understanding honors great suffering in a way that explanatory and justificatory speech cannot, and that it is intellectually and morally more honest, fitting the scope of any possible knowledge we could have about both God and the world. God's response to suffering was liberation, not an explanation. I emailed Miroslav a follow-up question to all this, and he kindly replied with this dense but clarifying answer. The intellectual question concerning the problem of evil is not the most important question. The most important is the overcoming of evil. For me, the two, overcoming of evil and understanding how evil in the world does not undermine God's goodness, are related 
but irreducible. So I hope that in the end, one, God will make all things well, and that two, we will understand how the suffering of history does not defeat the claim that God is good. The idea is that we cannot judge the significance of any event until all its consequences are clear. And we can, in principle, not know that until the end of history. Only after the day of judgment will we know, as distinct from hope, that suffering is not a defeater of God's goodness. I admit I find this compelling. God offers not so much an explanation, which might in fact trivialize our present suffering, but a restoration, an actual overcoming of evil in the climax of the story. Bethany Soloretta agrees, and she added something important. I find it very compelling. And we sometimes think, well, you know, an event happens and it has a meaning. If you if you can't see the meaning of event, you're just not looking hard enough. But I'm actually not sure if that's if that's true. So there's a, a great it's actually from the Taoist tradition, but it's a story of like the wise farmer, right? There's a wise farmer living in a village and his horse, which is the only source of his livelihood, runs away. And all the village people go, oh, no, this is the worst thing that could have happened. He goes, well, I, I don't know. Too early to tell. And so about three days later, the horse comes back at the head of a whole herd of horses that it's found out in the wild and has, has brought back to its home. So now the farmer is rich beyond any means. And everyone's going, oh, wow, you're right. The horse running away was the best thing that could have happened. This is so great. And he says, well... I, I don't know yet. It, it's too early to judge. And then his only son is training one of the wild horses and it severely breaks his leg. He's just going to be unable to walk for life. And all the people say, oh, yeah, this was a terrible curse, you know, and, and on and on. And then and then it turns out the army breaks out in war and all the other young men who can still walk have to go off to war where they all die, you know. So actually the meaning of that first event, the horse running away, keeps shifting from being seen as a blessing and a curse because it does. Other later events reflect back on what that event meant and its meaning is not actually fixed at the time it happened. And, and I think that we've all had moments where we thought, you know, I wish that hadn't happened at the same time, given what happened later, I'm glad it did because it made me who I am and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else or anyone else. And I think that God will somehow create the story of this life in such a way that we will all say, wow, God, what, what a wonderful work you've done. And that's, and that's what redemption is. It's not just making up for the bad things. It's not compensation. It's recreation in a new form that is so compelling that it's better than what we could imagine. The Atlantic Monthly recounted a remarkable story of musical discord and resolution. Winton Marsalis, arguably the greatest living trumpeter, was playing incognito in a tiny jazz bar in New York City one sleepy evening in August. In the fourth song, Marsalis stepped forward and played a haunting ballad that had the little room spellbound. Yeah. 
At the climax of the tune, someone's mobile phone went off. The Atlantic says, blaring a rapid sing-song melody of electronic bleeps. People started giggling, apparently, and returned to their drinks and conversation. Marsalis stood motionless behind the microphone, eyebrows arched, and the Atlantic journalist, who happened to be there witnessing this, scribbled on his notepad, magic ruined. A few moments later, Marsalis started to play again. This time, the mobile phone tune he'd just heard. People laughed appreciatively and turned their attention back to him. Then he repeated it, we're told, and began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he had left off. The journalist remarked, the ovation was tremendous. A musical resolution, like the conclusion of the best stories, isn't a bad image of what Miroslav Volf and Bethany Solareta are saying. When we're in the discord, it just feels like discord, and explanations fail to comfort. But if the Christian melody, the Christian story is true, there's more to come. There's a resolution ahead. God intends to take all the discord and the sadness and somehow, I don't know how, somehow weave it back into his eternal melody. And if I can push the analogy just a step further, the resurrection of Jesus within history is like the first notes of the resolution. The resurrection tells us where we're headed, what kind of story this is. It's not a story of magic ruined. It's one of virtuosity, resolution, one that will end in innovation. It's a story that doesn't just resolve the tension. It's one that is all the greater for having passed through the discord to the resolution. And for those, you know, enduring suffering, what what are the resources that you might call upon uh, from scripture? I think the narratives of the cross continue to be the place where I go the most. Um, walking with Jesus as he walks through tremendous and, and innocent suffering is is where I find a home. I also find a home in the Psalms, in the in the prayers of God's people, articulating not only the joys, but also the despair and the hurt and the pain of life. And you hear that question, you know, God, where are you? Mm. Over and over again. Can't you see? Don't you hear? I mean, it's very risky, right? It's far more risky than the average Christian today. Yeah. And I just think like, yeah, let, let's let's do a little bit because God can take our, our questioning. God, God's going to be just fine. 
<laughs> even if we're angry, even if we hate God for a while, uh, God, God's going to be fine. So it's better to express that than to pretend that you're okay with everything when you're not. And this brings us back to Psalm 22 and the cry of the sufferer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you open up Mark's gospel, it turns out that these are also Jesus' words on the cross. He chose this ancient poem for his final moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of self-doubt on the part of Jesus. It's a deliberate identification with the suffering poet of Psalm 22. And so with anyone who has ever felt like crying out, why God? There on the cross, God in Christ enters our pain. He gets his hands dirty and even bloody. He experiences betrayal, injustice, agony, and even a final breath. Now, if that's true, God understands our pain, not just because he's all-knowing, but because he's experienced it firsthand. I know that's not an explanation, but many find it a comfort, or at least a sign that whatever is the meaning of suffering, it has to be consistent with the God who himself suffered in this world, alongside us, with us, for us. Um, but so that night, she slipped into a coma in her bed, in her bedroom with her brothers, with Jackson lying on the floor next to her. And so the very final day um, was sort of us, in a way, going about what we'd all, all done for weeks and weeks and weeks, just, oh, well, one kid's got to go out, we'll let him go out. And, and yet we knew it was her last day. Her breathing had changed so radically. Mm. And I think what that did was the stress of realising it's today when we'd been living with how many weeks, maybe six weeks of going, is it today? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? And then that actual day came and we knew it was that day. We just all sort of fell apart. <laughs> we'd been coping so miraculously. Um, mm. And then I think the stress just became intolerable. Mm. And But we were there with her, beside her, um, but there was friction and stress and, you know, it wasn't as if it was this beautiful bedside vigil. Mm. <laughs> um, the boys were off watching a documentary because they'd fled the room. The baby needed a breastfeed and Jackson and I were sort of a bit at each other and the nurses wouldn't leave. Why mm. wouldn't they leave? Yeah. So it just was a, mm, it wasn't... A beautiful farewell. I, I, remember you this, like, I, don't know. I remember at the time Jackson and Mary Ellen telling me this about Amity's last day, about how much they hated the moment, not just because they were finally confronted with what they had dreaded for months, watching Amity take her last breaths on their couch, but also because it didn't seem at all spiritual or profound. It wasn't a beautiful slipping away. They described it as disorganised and agitated even. It's yet another thing from this time that haunts them. I think we probably felt we didn't make her feel our love for her enough on that last day. That's probably what really eats us up. I think so, yeah. And we can't make it up to her. Well, not yet. But, yeah, so that, that, is, a, that is a pain that we just endure. Hmm. 
Amity died on the 11th of January, 2018. She was six years old. It's been almost four and a half years, and Jackson and Mary Ellen couldn't tell you honestly what part of the story they feel they're in. The grief is palpable. The future looks dark in many ways. Even after diagnosis and before she died, physically, the, the, the anticipatory grief that I had or the grief of knowing what was coming was um, quite hard to bear. It was, it, was, it was a thing in my life and you had to push through it. I mean, it was fine. We could do it, but it was, it was physical. After she died, it was really physical. I mean, I felt ill. I think from memory... Mary Ellen, you had a headache for like eight months or something. It was just really... Um, so it's not that anymore. Um, but for me, it's it's pretty unresolved. It's just not... It's not really getting better. It's getting less immediate... Um, you know, I try and, I guess, make sense of it or, or make sense of it's maybe not the right word. It's not making sense of it. It's, it's making something meaningful come out of it. But meaning and explanation are hard to come by. Sometimes the words, why have you forsaken me, from Psalm 22 and the lips of Jesus, seem the only right sentiment. There are days when I'm able to be thankful that there's a God who suffered. And so that God knows what Amity went through. That God's with me. Um, And then there are days when I just think that's... that doesn't make sense that this this all just doesn't make sense it's amazing to me how often I feel like my emotions are still what Amity was experiencing the anger the you're not real I mean it's I'm sort of the same God is a poo yeah God is a poo yeah we have a lot of listeners who are a bit sceptical about the Christian faith, or at least aren't sure you know, what to make of Christianity. So I want to ask you to close. Um, I want to ask you a question on their behalf. What is most compelling for you about the Christian faith? And I want you to answer this both intellectually, what is most compelling, and experientially, what is most compelling? I think that answer is one and the same. It's the incarnation. It's, it's that God not only love the world enough to create it, but to join us in this this wonderful, this ambiguous, this joy-filled and pain-filled existence um, and, and went through the same things that, that we go through of, of, of love and hunger and growth and joy and innocent suffering um, and 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 then in in the resurrection says, but that's actually not the full story either. It's a mysterious thing, isn't it, about about the Gospels, uh, the Bible, that that 
that God really offers, you, you're mentioning that, that aspect of empathy, that, that God really is a God who, who knows suffering. And I think when you're a bereaved parent, you are looking for empathy. <laughs> you just want people who get it. And I do feel like God gets it. And, and I don't, th- that doesn't explain things. Um, but I suppose, bizarrely, I sort of don't need the explanation. I don't know why I don't really need it. Maybe, maybe it's because I know it's not coming. <laughs> um, I'm just accepting. I, I don't know why God didn't save Amity or save all the kids who are dying of cancer or, you know, all the suffering. I don't know why he doesn't stop it. Um, but it's that that sort of um, he does know what we need and he's provided it, which is that he is weeping with us. So if you think of Jesus' responses in the Gospels, he, he Jesus is so often feeling sorrow, isn't he? <laughs> um, sorrow. And, and weeping as well, weeping alongside people. And that is actually hugely comforting. So I'll just live with that, that there is, that I guess that I know I can cry out to God and I know I feel like he'll, he'll know exactly what I'm trying to say. If Amity's story touched you, why not think about making a contribution to a reputable child cancer charity? We'll put a link in the show notes to a few different ones from around the world. I'm thinking there'll be plenty of questions about this episode. It's a really hard topic, so feel free to send them in. You can use the show notes for that or just go to underceptions.com. Actually, next episode is Q&A, and we've got a ton of questions to deal with. What's the point of a sermon anyway, someone asks, and how have they changed through history? How would Dixon spend $10 million in the quest for historical evidence for the Bible? There's another question about being woke, another about tattoos, and a really tough one about abortion, and a few others. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwee, social media by Sophie Hawkshaw and admin by Lindy Leveston. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of underceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Underceptions podcast.